Welcome back into the Original Gangsters podcast. Uh, we are very excited for this episode. We're going to do an entire hour on the one, the only, Demetrius Big Meech Flannery. Reputation precedes him. If you listen to hip-hop, you hear his name shouted out uh, on almost every rapper's uh, songs and lyrics. The leader, founder of the Black Mafia family, probably the most iconic African-American crime lord in American history. He is really a force of nature as a human being. He is someone that is right now in the process of, uh, of, of fighting to get out of prison on a sentence reduction. He's doing 30 years on a nonviolent offense. Uh, he's been in prison since 2005. And uh, if people don't know the, the Black Mafia family story, we'll give you a quick 30-second primer. Demetrius Flannery and his brother Terry Flannery started uh, what became the Black Mafia family in southwest Detroit in around 1989-1990. By the mid to late 90s, they had both left Detroit and uh, gone to expand the Black Mafia family brand uh, across the country. By the new millennium, you had something like 22 of the 50 states had Black Mafia family satellite crews operating. They became the biggest urban drug trafficking organization in American history, and they did it all relatively nonviolent, which is by itself a uh, achievement. They went into all these different cities and set up shop and made deals with these other groups and crews, and they welcomed them with open arms, and that kind of speaks to who Demetrius Flannery is. He is a diplomat, not a hardcore gangster, and I think that that should play some role in him getting um, at least consideration for a, uh, a sentence reduction. So we're lucky to have Demetrius's attorney, Wade Fink, as our guest. Thank you, Wade, for joining us. It's my pleasure. I appreciate you having me, and I appreciate you guys putting sunlight on these topics. It's important. Yeah. So Wade uh, comes from a, uh, a rich lineage in the criminal defense world. His father was Neil Fink, who was just a staple of criminal defense work here in Metro Detroit for 50 years. Um, learn from the best. And uh, his dad had a lot of high-profile clients, and you know, Wade's following in his dad's footsteps and has done a really great job advocating for, for Demetrius. So kind of to, to set the stage, Demetrius Flannery was convicted in or copped a plea in 2007 from the 2005 Operation Motor City Mafia bust, got a 30-year sentence, and since the pandemic hit, a lot of the remaining Black Mafia family members in prison have been filing motions to earn compassionate release because they're all nonviolent offenders, uh, with the exception of uh, Fleming Daniels, who's in on a state murder charge. But all the federal BMF co-defendants from that Operation Motor, Motor City Mafia bus, most of them are out of prison. Terry Flannery, Demetrius's younger brother, walked out back in May on a compassionate release to home confinement that was granted to him by the Bureau of Prisons, his warden in Ashland, Kentucky. Demetrius has been trying to follow in his brother's footsteps in filings for, for COVID-19 relief and has consistently hit roadblock after roadblock. It's a situation, in my opinion, where his infamy actually hurts him, even though perception and reality uh, when it comes to Demetrius are, are kind of two separate things. As I said, Demetrius is a nonviolent offender, he built his empire on diplomacy. And for him to have built this kingdom of drug trafficking that really spanned the nation and to do it without dropping bodies is a, is a real tribute to the type of leader he was. And I'm not condoning drug trafficking. He deserved to go to prison. He deserved to pay a debt to society. But uh, we're sitting here now, and it's uh, almost 17 years since he's been incarcerated and I think he's just asking for equal treatment. I don't know if I introduced my partner in crime, Jimmy Bucciolato. Did I, Jimmy? Uh, I don't remember, but I think people know I'm always around. All right. Well, I got my uh, <laughs> riding shotgun with JB, the doc, professor at Wayne State, my uh, my right hand, and, and someone that uh, has a love for this material as much as I do. He actually teaches it. I just write about it. So, Wade, why don't we just dive in here? Uh, how did you first get hooked up with Demetrius? Well, you know, it's uh, it, it was before uh, the pandemic started in, in earnest. There, you guys, I'm sure, are familiar, uh, seeing as how um, educated you are on this topic. 
with the First Step Act. And the First Step Act that was passed in 2018 not only had provisions in it that now allow for compassionate release motions from prisoners, uh, but also, you know, before that became kind of a thing, so to speak, because uh, of the pandemic, um, it also contained provisions to lessen um, the uh, the harshness of certain drug offenses. And, and, and Mr. Flannery, uh, Demetrius, qualifies for a sentence reduction. Uh, so I was approached uh, to, to handle that. And while we were handling that uh, point reduction um, in his guidelines, the pandemic hit. And uh, we shifted focus to compassionate release, uh, which made a lot more sense given Demetrius has some uh, health conditions um, and other compelling reasons we thought uh, that his sentence should be reduced. So we've been more focused on that, but um, should we not succeed, and we're on appeal now, but should we not succeed in compassionate release, we'll return to, uh, to the original approach, which is getting a sentence reduction, which he's entitled to some sentence reduction. The question's gonna be how much. What's the... Um situation like where he's locked up i think he's in sheridan oregon about an hour or two outside of portland um the last i checked it uh, covid wasn't um running rampant in that facility as bad as it might be in some other facilities but you know being behind bars at a time like this is not a place you want to be especially if you have um you know uh, out outlying conditions that might leave you more prone to to COVID because as we, we spoke on our, on our last episode about how, you know, almost everything about a correctional facility, uh, you know, kind of inherently the, the inherent factors of running a correctional facility makes it so you can't social distance and hygiene becomes much more of a, um, undertaking, especially when you're, we're talking about hygiene for, for thousands of people, um, all living in very tight quarters. Um, so what, what's it like for him right now under the COVID conditions in, in, in his uh, prison in Oregon? Well, it's a, it's a nightmare generally. Um, and, you know, it, it, there's, there's trade-offs here. So some prisons have been better than others at containing or, or restricting the flow. But the trade-off for that is incarceration becomes so much more punitive under conditions that y- you need to kind of suppress an outbreak. Uh, people get ended up, and this has happened to Demetrius, and this has happened to dozens of other clients that I represent in compassionate release cases. You end up, you know, some clients are in satellite camps, which have a lot more freedom of movement, and you can work, and, you know, you're not confined to a cell all day, but even those folks are confined to a cell for 23 hours a day. I mean, it's you're being treated like you're in solitary and confinement by no fault of your own or because you're dangerous, uh, but to try to suppress the outbreak. And the reason I give you that background is Sheraton has done a pretty good job at suppressing outbreaks when they're about to start. But the trade-off to that is it's it's absolutely miserable to live in those circumstances. The folks that, um, you know, that we pray for that have it, you know, they get put together in a gymnasium. Everybody else is locked down in their cells. Um, you know, phone calls and showers and food and everything that you ordinarily have a routine or, or some purpose for constructing a life in prison, that all kind of goes away when you're under these lockdown conditions. So my point in telling you that and, and what I think judges, a lot of judges have realized, and I hope some other ones who maybe haven't start to realize, punishment right now, incarceration right now is uh exceedingly worse than it is under normal circumstances, not just because people are getting sick and dying, but because the punishment aspect so much worse. So it's very hard, and it's very hard mentally. There is a suicide crisis in some state prisons, um, and, you know, there's a mental health crisis more generally to begin with, with incarcerated individuals. But when you add this on top of it, um, it, it, it's, it's far more punitive than it should be. But then the other side of the trade-off, guys, is the ones that have COVID running rampant. And the descriptions of those prisons, it, it's, it's, it's like a war zone. Um, you know, you, you can read the New York Times article. You can see a couple of those videos that have come out um, from inside conditions. But hearing this described to you, I'm getting chills thinking now of some of the conversations I've had, um, the, the, the constant coughing, the people begging for help. Um, and, and corrections officers, they're not, they're not nurses or medical professionals. There's a lot of heroes in the BOP, don't get me wrong, but they don't know uh, how to uh, triage a situation like this when you got 120-some inmates that are infected at once. So I hope people understand that, yes, there, there are people that are incarcerated that have done some pretty heinous things, 
But as far as the federal system go, that is not the norm. Uh, there, there's a lot of humanity in the folks who are incarcerated. These are human beings as well. And it's easy to not really think about it. But when you understand that there's a lot of nonviolent drug offenders, folks that come from collecting rainwater to shower in in poverty that knew nothing else, the conditions they're living in are atrocious. And some of the judges in our district, I, I wish would look more at the humanity of the situation. Yeah, can you speak to that? Because Scott brought this up and really emphasized the the idea of of, of Meech as a nonviolent offender. And uh, some people only vaguely familiar with his case maybe find that surprising if they, if they don't know that much about. So can you speak to that? Because I think that really is, is important here. We're talking about what's humane here, uh, what's cruel and unusual punishment versus, you know, humane treatment. Um, can you speak to the, this, this idea of, of Meech being a nonviolent yeah, and offender? Wade, and Wade, can you also, do you feel, uh, piggybacking off what James, James, <laughs> James, James just said, um, do you feel like the powers that be understand that about him? Because uh, it's, it's definitely Buck's conventional wisdom. When you're talking about people of his ilk through time, talking about Nikki Barnes or uh, Supreme McGriff, um, Larry Hoover, you know, some of the people that would be put in the same category in terms of power and sway over, over the masses and, and running drug empires. You know, those guys, uh, even here in Detroit, you're talking about YBI or the best friends. Uh, you're talking about very violent groups that took over their territory by force and left a lot of bodies. Um, do you feel like the powers that be kind of have trouble separating Meech from from the rest of those kind of his contemporaries as drug kingpins because that's not the narrative that, that, or that's not the accurate narrative of, of who Meech was and what his legacy was. Yeah. I mean, you both know I'm going to be the cautious lawyer and talking about the facts, but I certainly will say this. And I think this is a helpful answer on, on both counts. Um, the government is so uh, strained so hard to find a violent hook in Demetrius's case that they basically had to make up a charge that didn't exist uh, in, in Demetrius's case. And, and, and what I'm talking about is when we were at the trial court level asking for compassionate release, at the time, not to get too legalistic, but there was a you had to go through a, a question of whether someone had was dangerous to society, uh, a, a danger to society, and look at that factor only. You don't have to do that anymore, but we had to look at that factor only uh, when we first brought this motion. And the assistant United States attorney in our case um, told the federal district court in a brief and on the record, an officer of the court, someone with tremendous power, told the federal district court that Demetrius Flannery had a pending murder charge in Atlanta and a warrant out for his arrest for a murder in Atlanta. If you're going to toss that out right into, into a court, not only in briefing, but on, on the record, if you're going to say something like that, I, I'd hope you're pretty sure uh, that that's the case. That wasn't the case. Uh, there was uh, an investigation that was done into something that happened at a nightclub where Demetrius actually himself was shot. Um, it was it was yeah. it was self defense. He was cleared of it. Uh, if anyone does any research into the incident, it happened at a a nightclub in Atlanta in the uh, in 2003, um, where he, he was attacked. Basically, you know, he, he, he was shot from behind. Right, there, and there's no evidence that he did any shooting. But the reason I'm bringing that up is you're telling a federal court that this man has a murder charge pending against him, and it's so demonstrably false. We actually had the the order we presented to the court to show that uh, the the, the uh, a grand jury had been de declined. They're, they're what, they didn't even ask a grand jury to indict in Atlanta. And that's one of the most aggressive prosecutors in Atlanta, by the way, the one that charged Ray Lewis. Uh, that prosecutor down there doesn't hesitate if he has the evidence. And my point in sharing that uh, fact with you is that's the best they had to demonstrate some kind of violent nature of Flannery. It doesn't exist. Um, people can say what they want about uh, the the size of and scale of, of of what he accepted responsibility for, and people obviously, um, for good reason, you would have concern about drug dealing and and what that leads to in a community. But he, and he knows that, but he's not a violent man, and he never encouraged violent. And in fact, with his reputation and his age and the rehabilitation he's on, undergone in these 
oh, uh, 15 years, seven, close to closer to uh, 17 years in prison, is he can help. You he know? can definitely help. He's got a voice uh, that rings loud from coast to coast. And frankly, I think that in some ways that hurts him. I think, again, not to get too down a socioacademic uh, or, or racial overtone um, rabbit hole here, but I think when you're someone like Demetrius Flannery and you have the influence that he has uh, over, dare I say, millions of people, um, and you're African-American, that, that scares white America, um, in my opinion. And Demetrius is someone that is very respected in both the underworld, he's very respected in hip-hop circles, he's very respected in Hollywood circles, he's very respected in um, black corporate, African-American corporate circles. Um, and his voice carries a lot of weight even though he's been in prison for 17 years. Um, he's someone that, playing off of what Wade said, I think it would be amazing if he, if he was able to come out at some time in the near future and take all of that uh, influence and, and galvanize it towards you know, self-empowerment, community activism, because all the conversations I've had with him and his people are all about a, a Black Mafia family rebrand going forward. And, and flipping a negative into a positive and using all that influence and iconography that still exists 15, 20 years after their heyday and, and, and using it for good. Um, and I think it's and a real missed opportunity to not let him out here to do that. He's, and it's, it, it's, it's dead on. And we know that it's not just words because he's doing it from prison. Right. He's organizing people. I covered, I covered his uh, backpack giveaway uh, back in uh, – in the summer of 19. A backpack drive, a day for kids before school started. He wants to he start a scholarship fund. He encourages people, even if it's not in his name, he encourages people to organize. Yeah. And and there's a there's a black empowerment element to this that uh, I think has been missed. And I'm and I'm trying desperately to get back into the district court and explain it that regardless of who he was in the past, right? His stature now, if you release him, you know, young black youth in our communities to see a man of stature and power to, to have accomplished what he's accomplished and to explain to them how to do it legitimately. And here's how you succeed as a black man in America. I don't want you to go down this path. I want you to go down this one. That is, is so important. And it gets lost in this conversation talking about why this man needs more punishment. And I think you and I have talked about this before, Scott. There's two reasons for incarceration, punishment and rehabilitation. And it always, the latter always seems to get forgotten. This man's done 15 years and he's over 50 years old. And he's done everything right in prison. He hasn't been in trouble in prison. Nothing outside of the ordinary. You know, you have your shirt untucked wrong, you get a misconduct ticket. He's been educating himself, trying to organize the community and doing right. So rehabilitation should mean something. We shouldn't just be out for blood to punish more. It's a lot. It's a long time of this man's life as a 51-year-old, and he can do a lot more good out than he than he's doing in. I mean, there's a real. This is something I talk about in my classes. I mean, it, there there was a shift, a paradigm shift in the criminal justice system, starting around the 70s and 80s, but it really picked up in the 90s too under the Clintons. It's a bi the bipartisan thing. I mean, Biden and and Harris signed on to it just like Reagan and Nixon, but was a shift from rehabilitation to punishment so just where just raw warehousing so the I mean, and this is the the correlation of mass incarceration so the the emphasis is no longer about um reintegrating you into society but it's that you did something that that society doesn't approve of so we're going to punish you and and we're still seeing that there's some attempts serious attempts at reform we've talked about in other episodes but this is still the dominant paradigm i would argue uh, from a criminological perspective it's still the dominant par paradigm from a prosecutor standpoint, too, right. it's judges are starting to come around. We're seeing a lot of good in our district, especially on these cases. But it's prosecutors with that with that mindset that I think needs to change. Sorry to interrupt. No, you. no, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that, so it's I a agree. vengeful approach as opposed yeah. to a let's try to fix this and make something good of it approach. Yeah, and I, I would say to, to Wade's point, um, I, I I've published some things on this. Um, I'm interested in this 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 idea of. Um, uh, underworld figures, or at least formerly underworld figures, who who um, 
people are, are inspired by, but 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 politicized. Um, and I think that it has to be someone like Meech because um, speaking to uh, at-risk youth, it's not it's not going to be someone who's like a Harvard-educated you know, dude who's never been on the streets and, and they're going to talk to someone who's at risk and say, well, you should, you should avoid this type of behavior <laughs> that that's going to fall on, on deaf ears. It, it has to be someone with street cred like me who can say, I've been there. I did it. These were the mistakes. Here's why you should choose a different path, but also become aware of what we're talking about. Criminal justice reform. It's not just about personal behavior. It's also about social empowerment. So, I, I mean, I don't know if you want to speak to that, way, but I, I think he could be a great ambassador. I agree with Scott that he could be a great ambassador for that cause. I wrote this in the brief, and, and frankly, I don't, think, I don't think the judge was dismissive of it. He just never got to it. He disagreed with me on whether uh, Demetrius was a health risk, and that's a whole different topic. But you're 100% right, Jimmy. It's much easier, and that's what I've been trying to say, and Meech has been screaming it as loud as he can. It's much easier to to go into the communities as someone who, like I said earlier, collected rainwater to shower, who had to use hot plates, who had government milk and government cheese. He came from meager beginnings. I've seen the house that he grew up in. Exactly. His dad was a struggling musician. His mom was a nurse. Um, They lived, you know, right where kind of Southwest Detroit hits Ecorse and Taylor and... Uh, just you know, factory, uh, factory town, and very smoggy, and you know they 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 bootstrapped it, man. I mean, they didn't they they came from nothing. Those were God fearing, good people yeah. who would never encourage anything but the best and legitimate legitimacy for their sons, for their children. But poverty is so brutal, and and that's why I try to use the rainwater example because uh, who it's tough to associate with that if you've never even been close to that. Right. And some of these federal judges my and me and, and prosecutors never been close to that to right. remotely understand the pain and the fear that comes with that. And you don't have to condone drug dealing or, or, or going to certain means to make eggs meet to, uh, to understand it. It's to, to, to understand it is not to condone or accept that that has to be. But to understand it is to be a human. And yeah. there's such a lack of that. And it probably get me in trouble to say it, but it's it, it's so common in prosecutors' mindset. There's such a lack of the humanity that is inside an individual. I ha- argued a case today that was about bail, and everything the prosecutor said was about what this guy has been in the past. It's not about the humanity of who is in that. So who is that person? We're always we're not cogs in a wheel. We are individuals, and I think that's bringing this back to where we originally started. Uh, I think that's why Demetrius can speak to people and they will listen because he's been there and he knows that pain and he knows how hard it is to get out of that cycle. And that's why his advice would be meaningful. And and the impact, you know, what I'm about to say, you know, you can judge it, you can pick it apart, but it's fact. The fact of the matter is whether you're talking about Detroit, Atlanta, New York, L.A., you can go anywhere into this around this great country and you can go into urban environments and you brought Demetrius Flannery into a a church, or you brought Demetrius Flannery into an elementary school. That's the for those kids right now. That's the equivalent of meeting Michael Jordan or meeting Patrick Mahomes. I, 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 and I'm not exaggerating, because those kids in that environment hear his name in almost every rap song that they hear on the radio. They hear him being propped up by Fifty Cent, by LL Cool J, by Ti, um, by by all their all their uh, their, their rap. Uh, idols, their 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 hip hop, uh, their favorite hip hoppers. Um, he has a uh, a currency when it comes to I don't want to say baller status. That's too street, but to you know, in terms of African American celebrity um, and impact, D- Demetrius's name in terms of for youth culture right now is at that level. And those kids would listen to him because, like I mentioned on the last episode, you know, in the last five years, there's been over 150 songs in the Billboard Top uh, 100 that shout out Meech's name. And that means something to the youth. And again, we can sit here and argue about, you know, what value we give to to reform criminals. And, and that's a whole other episode. But, that, but the but fact that's of the, the, thing. the latter point is important. 
it, it doesn't, it's not, and doesn't have to be because of uh, his conduct that people look to him with admiration or for advice. It can be because he was a black man with power and wealth. Mm -hmm. right. That you can, it is okay for a for the black youth and the black community to see someone of wealth and power that looks like them. That is okay. How he got there, I, I he would he himself discourages it. He wanted me to to scream that from the rooftops in in my briefs, and and he does it himself. But to have someone uh, who has been at the peak, been at the pinnacle is important for people who otherwise uh, can't see their way out and for no fault of their own but because they're stuck in a, in a vicious circle of poverty because of policy decisions uh, of, of local state and national leaders. Are you, uh, wait, have you ever heard of the, uh, in criminology, the strain theory? It's called strain theory. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but. Um, I haven't heard that term used, but tell me. It yeah, hopefully so I, I think of the, the, I use the Chambers brothers as a case study in my classes to talk about, and uh, they were prolific drug traffickers but in, in came the late from, 80s? Or uh, from about 84 to 88, they had, come up, late 80s. they had come up from the Mississippi Delta in Arkansas, uh, Mississippi, Arkansas area, and, and came up here in the late 70s for uh, a bunch of brothers, like yeah, eight, eight or nine brothers. family up here. They came up for auto factory jobs and... By the, there weren't any. Right, by the early <laughs> 80s, the, none of them had work, and, and they went into the, the drug dealing trade and controlled all of the retail uh, uh, drug trafficking in the, in the mid to late 80s. I mean, they, they really were pro prolific. The, the, yeah. They said at one point that they were making more than Chrysler. Well, Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton uh, name-checked them in his, yeah, the uh, his, his speech at the Democratic National Convention back in 1988. Right. So in any event, and I like what Wade, you said, to explain is not to justify but anyhow, these guys were, come from total poverty. And the, the idea with strain theory is that our society puts all sorts of emphasis. We send mixed messages. We, we, we place all sorts of emphasis on material wealth, material success. But not everyone has equality of opportunity. <laughs> and so you send, you send mixed messages. So what happens is when someone's experiencing this strain of the mixed messages, like you have to succeed, you have to have wealth, you have to have status. But we're going to block the, the so-called legitimate routes to that through education, through accumulating wealth because of systemic racism, you know, other kinds of, of ways that we, that we block marginalized populations from, 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 from achieving those things. Uh, you, you innovate. The term in criminology is, is you innovate. And, um, and in some cases you, you innovate by getting involved in illicit economies because those are the only, not necessarily that you're an inherently nefarious person, but, but those are the more realistic opportunities to achieve the, the wealth and status that mainstream society places emphasis on. So again, to explain is not to justify, but when I think of the Chambers brothers, when I think of Meech, um, I think of, uh, of strain theory, this, this idea of like, you, you figure out how to navigate through this. And if this is the more realistic opportunity, you, you well, I mean, with the Chambers brothers, they came up here and like kind of speaking to where they came from, they got rich. And all they wanted to do, really, I mean, it, they, they, they were so um, young and eager and, and not worldly, but, you know, they got rich. And their idea of, you know, how do we spend this money? Or we're going to take everyone out for Big Macs. We're not going to go to the London Chop House. We're not going to go to Morton's. <laughs> we're not going to go to, you know, we're going to all go. We're all going to go. We're going to, there's going to be 200 of us. They're going to roll up to McDonald's and I'm going to get all of us Big Macs. Or we're going to take a caravan of, of Mercedes down to Cedar Point. Like <laughs> that's how kind of small their world was. Or we're going to take this, this nasty uh, house that we live on in, in a really bad neighborhood of the east side of Detroit. Instead of moving out to a mansion in the suburbs, we're just going to take that house and we're going to gold plate everything inside the house. Like, that's what the Chambers brothers were doing. And it was just like... Yeah, it, but I'm just saying that, but the point is, though, th there's currency to that because mainstream society, like, so like, White suburbanites who have, who have wealth don't think anything about buying Big Macs for yeah. everyone because they can and they do. Right. But for the Chambers brothers, that was a big. No, I know. I'm I don't saying, want. I don't want to belittle. Like, no, I'm not was, trying to belittle. I'm, I'm just. I'm just that was a to, big deal. It, if, it's just, if you it's, come from it's nothing. It's interesting to me though when you had other people of that era of that ilk, the Demetrius Holloways, the Maserati Ricks, the Butch Joneses, yeah. who 
were taking trips around the world. Right. They were going to Vegas. They were right. going to uh, New York City. Right. They were going down to Florida. They were buying properties all over the country, all over the right. And, and when you got to the chambers, they just wanted to go to McDonald's and, and buy Big Macs. For right. All their it was. Friends. It was with some of those other guys. You have conspicuous consumption, and yeah. and the Chambers brothers were country. I mean, they were. Right. They were, from our, they were from Arkansas. But anyhow, I just think of strain theory as something that um, if we want to think about this from a sociological perspective, and again, I'm not excusing what, what Meech did, but, but I, I, just, I would hope that prosecutors and judges would take some of this academic stuff that we, that we think about <laughs> and apply it. Absolutely. Not only, not only does that concept make sense, but I, I, I would say t- taking it down from just the materialistic, I mean, there is just like a... To a lot of people in communities of tremendous poverty, it is opaque how you escape the pathway to find it. Right? I, I that poem. I don't. I think it was Langston Hughes, "The Glass Staircase." I always thought of that that poem. It describes a, a glass staircase for the for affluent people to walk up. It's invisible to some people. Right. I mean, Great path, pathway. So forgetting just wealth. I mean, when you literally can't keep the lights on at Christmas and you have to use hot plates to, to cook Christmas dinner for your family, selling uh, drugs on the corner to just stone-cold survival is understandable. And and strain theory also makes sense for that concept too, right? Yeah. To, how do I make ends meet? How do I live in Michigan where it's going to be minus 10 degrees for several months of the years? Uh, and have a roof over my head. And that's the whole concept of it is okay. And I try to do this in every brief I write. It is okay to explain why someone did something without saying that we, that's what we want to happen. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out like Big Meech, the Chambers brothers, those are the exceptions. Most guys don't rise to those right. heights. Exactly. <laughs> Most of the guys are workers. Spokes on a wheel. Just, right. Yeah. And, 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 and they're surviving. Concept and uh, com- uh, complex and, um, and, and get stuck in, in a forever in a forever wheel of being in the criminal justice system. That's the vast majority. How, so, yeah. how, how much do you think the television show, and we can get into that now, played a role or plays a role in um, Meech's uh, fight for for early release? Um, you know, encountering some hurdles. Uh, in case people don't know, and I'm guessing a lot of you might not know. Uh, the Stars Network is doing a big scripted drama based on the rise and fall of Demetrius and his brother Terry. The show's called uh, Black Mafia Family. It's the follow-up to Power, which was 50 Cent's uh, show about a fictional drug dealer from New York named Ghost. All the people behind the show Power, which was uh, became the Stars Network's signature drama, uh, are now on board doing the Black Mafia Family story and so you, you know, you're going to see the life and times of Demetrius and Terry Flannery um, on your television in the very near future. And there's been a lot of uh, publicity re- regarding uh, the show and casting for the show. And, um, you know, 50 Cent is uh, all over his social media on a pretty regular basis these last couple of years telling people about it. Do you think that that uh, makes judges or prosecutors angry when they see something like that? I know um, when I was involved in the white boy Rick stuff, you know, he came up for parole, uh, and kid rock came to his parole hearing and was like, yeah, he's going to, you know, get out of prison and I'm going to take him with me and he's going to go on tour with me. I'm going to have him under my wing. And the prosecutors and judge were like, wait, we're going to let him out of prison early so we can go on a rock and roll tour. <laughs> like that ain't happening. No, so like, so, when, so I guess what I'm saying is kid, kid rock coming to vouch for him and saying, Hey, I'm going to take him off your hands and I'm going to, you know, keep an eye on him. It, it ostensibly, it looked like it would help him because you had this person of such stature coming and saying, I want to help. But in reality, it hurt him. They didn't want him on a, a, a rock rap tour going around the country. Right. Do you think that the prosecutors and the judges look at it and they're like, uh, we let him out. We're just kind of condoning the behavior for, you know, for this television show. That, that's, that's a really good question. And, you know, I'll say, I'll answer it two ways. As, as far as the judges go, in our case, we have a really excellent judge, judge David Lawson, longtime judge. And, yep thoughtful and deliberate. And I really, I don't think that affects his analysis at all, just based on, you know, his, his record. Um, and I don't think the vast majority of the Eastern district judges, which is actually, we are so lucky. They might not, they, I would judges. guess they might not even know. 
Like, they're not the two people that I think are keeping up on on. Uh... We have such a great panel of jurists in our district. It's really it, we're kind of an exception in the country with just some of the great jurists we have in this district. But leaving judges aside, I absolutely think it enters into the calculus for prosecutors. And I and I hope my assistant prosecutor in Meech's case sees this because I, I I'd love her to hear it with this lamb. She it affects her so much that she wrote in a brief uh, disparaging Demetrius Funnery Jr., a young college kid at a university in Nevada who's going to play his father in a TV just series. Got, just got cast. Yeah. Didn't have two pennies to rub together. His flight attendant mother trying to make ends meet. Uh, and he has this amazing opportunity, a college kid, and he's disparaged in court briefs like he's a criminal, like he's glorifying what his dad did. It's a story, and he's an actor, and he's a kid. So yes, you can sense in my voice that I think it affects prosecutors' judgment. I don't know if there is a, a uh, I don't think there's a jealousy component, but it's it it, it for some reason it, it affects them that uh, they they think that that there's just getting gain from crime when that's not what's happening. There's just some positive externalities, thankfully, to to this where his son is getting an opportunity. It's an interesting story for people entertainment-wise. And hopefully, like we've been saying earlier in this show, with that show and you know the, the nationwide release of it, there's a compelling narrative that Meech can tell about doing right, right? Here's what I did, here's my crazy story, uh, and here's who I am now and who you should be. So I hope that answers the question. Yep, I don't think it, it affects judges, but it absolutely enters into the calculus of prosecutors, how much pushback I get, the notoriety that someone gets. I think it really irks them and sometimes probably rightfully so i mean sometimes there you know there be there be uh criminal defendants that go out and brag on rap albums and stuff about what happened in court and i can get why that would be frustrating this is different much different uh to go after a kid and and the rest of his family the way the, that that office has done and good riddance to to the uh u.s attorney from the eastern district matthew schneider who's no longer there i hope that biden appoints somebody who uh understands the humanity of people. So how much, I mean, uh, are you at liberty to discuss, I mean, how much in terms of this show do, do they consult with the brothers, like uh, in terms of the, the tone they, of they the show, a, the a, script? They have, they have the, con I can speak to it. Yeah, I know that they both have consult. That. They both have con <laughs> they both have consulting agreements. Okay. Um, okay. I was just thinking of the authenticity. But of, again, of, that, that can, you know, that, that, that job can mean multiple different things. I mean, it can mean that they're just paying you to shut up. <laughs> they're not paying you at all. It could mean that they're just consulting you and giving you lip service, and then they're not going to use what you say. Or it could mean that they're leaning on you uh, to help shape the story. So, I mean, yeah, I just I've, been in, I've been involved in some consultancies where I've, you know, in one situation I'm being used uh, and abused. <laughs> well, one situation I'm being used, I'm being leaned on. I'm I'm viewed as like a, a linchpin in getting the story tell a story told. And then in other consultancies, I've basically been told to go shut up and sit in the corner. <laughs> and you're just going to get the consultancies. You know, it's something that you can put on your resume, but you're really not going to do much consultancy for us because we don't want to hear from you. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious because <laughs> I mean, like, if we're talking about like a, a, a like part of the narrative here being one of redemption. You know, but I think in this case, I think that, you know, from, you know, uh, are they going to, are they going to take that into consideration? That the I'm not the people? expert on this, but I will say just from my, uh, my, my minor amount of exposure to, to this project, uh, I believe that 50 cent is sincere in wanting to, uh, use input from the Flannery brothers and, and how to, how to shape uh, yeah. some of the narrative. That'd be cool. And I think that he looks at it as, as building authenticity. Yeah. Because you're only to get those stories that go into kind of the the nitty gritty into the into the corners of uh, the nooks and crannies from the guys. Yeah, yeah. I just hope in season six, seven, eight, whatever it is, <laughs> I get played by somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right. <laughs> I don't know for sure, but I I've been able to read some of the production documents, and they got a character in there that I'm sensing is based on Steve Fishman, <laughs> and. Uh, because all everyone on the Steve Fishman's the you know one of the top criminal defense attorneys in in Detroit's been around forever. Um, 
he can walk on water with a lot of people uh, in the underworld because he, he got uh, is, is kind of uh, his making his bones as a criminal defense attorney. He got Frank Nitty Usher out of a, a triple beheading. <laughs> he was doing life sentence for, for chopping three people's heads off and and fish got him uh, released. Uh, got the got the case tossed out and acquitted at trial. So from that point forward, uh, a lot of people look at fish as uh, kind of the gold standard. Um, and Fish represents Terry Flannery, not back during the case. He's represented Terry. Well, actually, I think he did represent K- Terry in the case and has represented him since then. But there's a character in the show, and I don't know how much of this is fictionalized and how much of this is based on reality, but there's a character in the show that's supposed to be the number one criminal defense attorney in Detroit who's a Jewish guy who I, I, I'm, I think they call him like not fish, but they call him like another name, like Fletch, like Fletch. <laughs> and then there's a character that's played by a female rapper from Detroit, who I'm a big fan of, Cash Doll, who got cast. She plays a, a paralegal to this lawyer, and the Demetrius Flannery character is having an affair or romance with Cash Doll, who's supposed I didn't to be. Know that Cash Doll got cast. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so and I think that 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 character that I think is being called Fletch is supposed to be Fish, Steve Fish. So this doesn't connect to the other show on Stars at all, right? It's just the same production people, but it's not sort of part of the same universe as Power. As Power, no, no, okay. But Fifty was behind Power, and a lot right. of the producers are behind Power, and then the showrunner is Randy Huggins, who's from Detroit, and was one of the main writers on Power. Now he's. He's the showrunner, so he's the number one writer now for for Black Mafia. Fans. You have every reason to believe of the, the high quality nature of this production. Just looking at those screenshots that come out, it looks it looks incredible. And I know that Randy has been in touch with both Flannery brothers uh, for consultation. Are they filming any of it here? Yes. So they oh, started good. they started filming last week. Oh, good. And they're filming uh, in Detroit as well as in Atlanta, which are kind of the two home bases for for Black Mafia family. Yeah, because I can't stand when they don't. The stories no. about Detroit. I was involved in the White Boy Rick film, and the entire production was in Cleveland. Right. Yeah, and they're showing the east side of Detroit, and there's like a body of there's like a little like a river running through like a little brook <laughs> running through the backyard of someone in the east side of Detroit. I was like, well, I've never seen that before. <laughs> right. I've never seen a, any uh, rivers running through uh, the east side of Detroit. Can you talk a little bit about your father and and? learning from him and, and kind of seeing the reputation that he built for himself uh, kind of start. Am I right when I say that it kind of started uh, with the John Norman Collins case? Yeah, you are. It's very kind of you to, 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 to let me talk about him. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. He, so, you know, since I was yay big, I mean, since I was a baby, I mean, my dad has always talked about some of the things I just touched on today about like the value of the individual and, he was just—he always cared, and he was always intellectually so advanced. For you know, it wasn't just like plead him and go to lunch type lawyering. He he cared very much about the Constitution and the role of a criminal defense attorney and what prosecutors are supposed to be. Right, that's why you, I'm so sharp sometimes with my language because I I feel so strongly that prosecutors have such an important role as ministers of justice, not just advocates for the the, the victims. Um, and, and he instilled that in me well, since I was a baby. I mean, I was talking about people versus X case at eight years old. Right. And, um, he was, it was very, he's a special intellect in that regard. And so many people, the Neil Fink tree, you know, branches out to you ask anyone, any old time lawyer, there's, there's some branch connection to, to the main route. That's Neil Fink. But uh, his mentor was Ivan Barris, right? He, Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis. Okay. Joe Lewis, so that was, you know, when he was a young lawyer, back then you didn't need to have a bachelor's. He didn't even finish college, but he went to law school, finished first in his class having not even graduated college, hooked up with Joe Lewis, and virtually one of the earliest cases he fell into was John Norman Collins, uh, which for those who don't know was the accused serial killer in Michigan, subject to the Michigan murders and many uh, other books and, and series. But my dad took a you know a lead role in that case. Joe Louisell did some of the heavy lifting with closing and stuff. But um, you read some of those old articles from like the Ann Arbor papers and stuff. My dad you know took a big role and got kind of national relevance from it. And 
and, you know, kind of became one of the go-to guys and, and practice went on to practice for 50 years, just solely doing criminal defense. So that, that's who I kind of have coursing through my veins, you know, uh, on a daily basis. He's my hero. He's the reason I left Dickinson, right. After a few years doing corporate law, I was meant to be in the trenches, man. Yeah. My dad, uh, you know, schooled me on all the great criminal defense attorneys and, um, he knew Neil, uh, they'd both gone to, uh, Detroit College of Law, which is now Michigan State. And, yeah. uh, you know, when I first started to get interested in, in writing about this kind of stuff, uh, my dad introduced me to Neil. I remember I, 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 I told Wade off air. I remember meeting him for the first time. Uh, would have been the early 2000s um, at the Steve's Deli. On, uh, it actually, great. it's Steve's Deli in the same parking lot where Jimmy Hoffa was, was kidnapped, uh, at 15 and Telegraph. Right. And, um, yeah, just uh, my dad had, had such reverence uh, for your father in terms of someone that was just so great in front of a jury and was such a great orator and someone that, uh, really had so much passion and heart. Uh, behind his advocacy, and I got—I I was lucky. I got to see him in action um, in in one case that I I covered early on in my uh, crime writing career. I covered uh, Jackie Jackaloni's uh, 2007 yeah. or eight racketeering trial. I was in high school during that trial. And uh, Wade got him out, uh, got him acquitted. No, Neil did. Sorry. God, I called <laughs> and I called Wade Neal yesterday on the phone. I love that. <laughs> yeah, so so Neal got uh, uh, Jack Jackaloni acquitted, and that was the last major organized crime prosecution in Detroit. Was that 06 case? Um, everybody pled out except for Jackie. He went to trial. Like I said, I believe it was 07 or 08. Um, and I remember it like because I was in high school, and uh, I got to text text Jackie Jack's son, yeah. not guilty. Vito, little little Vito, yeah. And uh, I was there for the I was there for the verdict. That's awesome. <laughs> and Billy and both both Billy and Neil turn around to Frank the Bomb Bomberito, who again I have such love for. R.I.P. the Bomb. Uh, and he says, "I'm." And this is before I knew Frank the Bomb. And I'm on the other side uh, of the aisle, but I could hear the conversation. And both Billy Jackaloni, who was Jackie's father, Vito. Um, very, very um, powerful uh, organized crime figure in this area, area for years and years and years, also known as a, um, a guy that a lot of people uh, like to go pal around with. He was his brother, Tony Jackaloni, who was the street boss, was more of the I want to stare, uh, stare at you and scare you. And Billy was more of the let's go out and play golf. And I might be a scary guy, but, you know. I'm also a, a guy that you can buddy and pal around with. And uh, Billy's son, Jack. Uh, is now allegedly um, the leader of, of what's left of the Detroit mob. He went on trial for racketeering in, in, in like I said, in 07. And Frank Bomarito was his kind of right-hand man. They called him Frank the Bomb, ran uh, kind of South Warren, um, that area, f- uh, for a long time. And it's kind of a very loud, uh, boisterous, colorful personality. And and the, the jury's about to read the verdict in both – Neil and Billy turn around to Frank and say, I need you to keep your mouth shut when they read that verdict. I don't want to hear any celebrating. He's like, because you know we're walking out of here and we got an acquittal, but I don't, I don't want you to end up uh, getting us in trouble with the judge. They're going to hold you in contempt. They're going to hold Jack in contempt. So when they read the, when they read the, the verdict, which will be not guilty, keep your mouth shut. They read, the, they, they read the verdict. It's not guilty. And Frank says, I told you, I told you it was going to be a not guilty verdict. Oh, man. So he does the opposite of what they told him to do. So was the judge pissed <laughs> no, off? No, <laughs> it was fine. It just it was funny. Both Neil and Bill, Billy Jack, only turned around to Frank, like, literally at the same time, be like, keep your mouth shut when they read the verdict. You but, never told me that. I'm yeah. so glad you told me that. That's awesome. But he t- I, I was there when he had the um, the prosecution star witness on the, on the stand, and uh, Neil turned him upside down, inside out. <laughs> Uh, and totally impeached impeached his testimony, and it was a great piece of litigation, a great piece of trial work. Um, Nobody the, could cross-examine like him. You know what the Ann Arbor, can't remember what the paper was called in the 70s, but it was dead on. They called him steel in a glove. <laughs> yeah, but Don DeSoto. It Sor- was so important, a careful, cautious, walking through it, but you were you knew you were just about to get 
crushed. Well, and that's how they knew they were going to get acquitted because the, the, the prosecution star witness was this guy named Don DiSerrano, um, who was a, a big gambler and had alleged to have been extorted for like $300,000 from, from Jackie. And that was the, the real crux of the case. And uh, Neil just uh, made mincemeat out of Don DiSerrano on, that, uh, on the stand, just chopped him up, sliced and diced him to the, to the point where he walked off the stand and he had no credibility. That was really the, the, the prosecution's, um, that was their ace in the hole. So when we got there for the verdict, it was kind of like a, a, a precon. it was already kind of like a, a, we knew what was going to happen, that, that, that he was going to be acquitted, and he was. Were there any other prominent, I mean, since our audience would be, might be aware of any other prominent underworld for Neil, figures Neil represented that, that, that everybody. Neil, yeah. But like who, like mentioned for people that don't know. The Jackaloni brothers were, were really his, his like bread and butter clients in terms of those type of people. I don't genre of clients yeah. that you're looking for. That's probably the most notable. And when you're the mouthpiece for Tony or Billy Jackaloni, I mean that that's pretty heady and, and it gives you um, a lot of stature. And I think a lot of people, um, looked at him as kind of like, you know, he's the Jackaloni's go-to attorney, almost kind of like an in-house attorney, um, and they felt very confident in, in Neil. And and speaking of that, you know, Tony Joe, Tony Jackaloni, for a guy that had a career that lasted sixty plus years, sixty-five years, he only did like six years in prison. In God, I want to say it was the mid '90s. HBO called my dad and asked, "And can they see some of the old Jackaloni files and transcripts and stuff like that?" Um, I don't think he ever ended up getting back to them. It was hard to organize. A couple of years later, The Sopranos comes out, and he's watching the credits. And you guys remember what Tony's lawyer's name was? Yeah, F- Mink. Neil Mink. Neil Mink. <laughs> now I. I could never get anyone to confirm it. I've sent emails. I've tried to just, I want to know for myself. But to me, that just seems so weird that they called, asked, and then Neil Mink. Yeah. I, the- I never thought about it. That's a great tidbit. Well, let me, t- let me <laughs> tell a quick, quick story that Wade will appreciate. <laughs> so I got to have dinner with David Chase. Um, at, I wish you would have asked him. At the Vincetta Garage. Oh, really? And this, Down the street from here. Right. <laughs> recording. And... He was here for a, a, a media tour promoting one of his movies, uh, the movie about the garage band in New Jersey that Gandolfini was in. Um, I had a friend that was in the PR business and was like, listen, I've, I've been, I've been uh, ushering David Chase and his wife around town for three days, and they're so sick of me, and I need some, <laughs> some entertainment for them. So will you please come to dinner? And, you know, you're a crime writer. You can kind of, you know, talk to David Chase about the craft or whatever. So... <laughs> We go, we go to the dinner and it's like, you know, hour and a half dinner and just no, you know, David Chase, just no effect. Like nothing I'm saying to him is getting any reaction out of him. <laughs> then as we're ending, as we're ending the meal, I say, you know what, uh, David, you, I don't know if you know this, but uh, we have a guy in the, in the Detroit organized crime group that everybody calls Hesh. And I'm talking about Alan Hilf, uh, who was the, who were the, the Jackaloni's main Jewish bookmaker. Um, Alan, they call him the general, Alan, the general health, but towards the end of Alan's life, when the Sopranos became popular, a lot of people in Detroit saw a ton of similarities between the, uh, hash character who was the kind of the Jewish criminal advisor for Tony Jackaloni and Alan health. So the people around here started calling him hash. <laughs> and I told this is when Alan was still alive. Alan died in 2014. So this might've been 2012 or 2013. And I told David Chase this and his eyes lit up and no effect from this guy for an hour and a half of a meal, just kind of mumbling, not looking at, not looking at me, not making eye contact. And I say this to him and he got so excited and he's like, wait, wait, so you're telling me there's a guy in Detroit that they all call hash because of my show, because of the Sopranos, and I was like, "Yeah, why is that surprising to you? You're, the you're biggest the show, number one show on the <laughs> biggest show in terms of for mob guys. This is the greatest thing since The Godfather. Right. You don't think they're all? You don't think this is all? You know, uh, uh, required w- uh, viewing for them? <laughs> and there just were a lot of similarities between the the health character, or sorry, Alan Health, and the the Hesh character, Herm Hesh Rabkin, who was played by Jerry Adler, um, all the way to the fact that the Hesh character kind of was a contemporary of the Soprano brothers, Johnny Boy and Junior. And then when Johnny Boy and Junior went by the wayside, he became very close to Johnny Boy's son, 
uh, Tony Soprano. And Alan Health was very close to both Billy and Tony Giacalone. And then as they kind of aged out of the game, became best friends with Jackie Giacalone and was kind of Jack Giacalone's, uh, I'd say, de facto consigliere advisor. They were always seen together. Um, so the, you think the writers borrowed that? Not only, not no, only I don't know. Fit, but, I, I don't know if they borrowed it or not. I know that yeah. David Chase. I'm just the reason I'm telling the story is that David Chase seemed blown away when I told him this. That he was like surprised that you know guys in Detroit would be calling a, a Jewish That's legendary though that you just sat down with. Yeah, him. I He's know. Like, notoriously a strange man. Yes, and I got to I got to give him one of my books, uh, my Mafia Prince book That's had just really come cool. out, and uh, it was you know about Atlantic City in the uh, 1980s, Crazy Phil Leonetti. Um, who was the Philadelphia mob underboss and ran Atlantic City for the Philly family. And I just finished the book. So, yeah, it must have been 11 or 12. Did, did David Chase option? No, we option? All, me, and, me and Crazy <laughs> Phil and the people that were behind that book were like, oh, Bernstein got a chance to give a signed copy yeah, directly yeah. to David Chase. And David Chase is looking for stuff to do. And it's a New Jersey mob story. Yeah. They thought for sure David Chase was going to be calling us for an option that never happened. Oh, man. Well, there's still t- it, yeah, you know, these things take time. Right. Well, you wait. might see some familiar things when it, in in the new one that comes out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Insult to injury if they. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually, you know what? I, I I when I I noticed that in one of my rewatchings of Sopranos about Neil Mink, and I think it did dawn on me that wait, that's kind of like Neil Fink. I never noticed I can, that. I that's fun. Never confirm it, but I'm convinced. The yeah. phone call, and then come on, one letter, so, and he represents. Yeah, folks, you know that uh, it's just—it's too strange to me, too much to be coincidence. Well, at least uh, that's my story, and I'm gonna stick to that because it's cool. I buy it. Wade, thank <laughs> you so much for joining us. This was a home run. Uh, you're so uh, articulate and and well versed on the law and uh, doing doing great things uh, in your advocacy for Demetrius Flannery, which this episode was um, kind of centered around. And uh, we definitely want to have you back on the OG whenever we can. Anytime. I, I honestly, I, this is an important show for a lot of reasons, but putting sunlight on these cases, you know, I, when I talk to just lay folks who, you know, have nothing to do with legal system, they need to understand these intricacies. So this is so important. And I'm really grateful that you guys took time to speak. Yes. On it. Well, hopefully enough. Uh, the couple times I've uh, spoken to Demetrius recently, I've, I've tried to, you know, uh, stick in there that he, that he needs to come on with us. And I think he's got some phone restrictions right now, but well, when, uh, when we get Let's his, get him home. when we Let's get his get phone home. cleared yeah. up and he gets home, uh, he always has a home here at the OG and, uh, you know, representing Detroit, you representing, uh, the legal community here. And I, I know that, uh, it means a lot. It means a lot to a lot of different people. Let and, me just, and, uh, and we salute you. Remind, uh, uh thank yeah. You, th- thank you, uh, Wade, but I, let's just remind, uh, audience members, if you like this episode, we've we've had some other BMF and Big Meech episodes. So go back, look at our archives, past episodes. Uh, and, we had Frank you know, Scartosi on, right. who was the uh, IRS. Did, did, did the financial autopsy on uh, on the Flannerys. Right, and um, follow the money. And uh, so we've had other episodes like this. Check it out. Follow us on Facebook. Follow, uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, shout us out if you like the show. And we're going to be, uh, we're in this kind of new phase of the original Gangsters podcast. And uh, we're going to be putting out content, you know, on a weekly basis. We're going to get in a groove and um, just really kind of keep on uh, pressing the ball downfield and 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 pushing the needle and, and, and really giving people, you know, great content, great guests, great subjects, uh, great analysis. And, and this was right in that wheelhouse uh, with Wade Fink. Uh, any anything you want to ch- uh, shout out, Wade, in terms of contact for you, or or uh, anything you want people to know about about you and your practice? Again, that's very kind of you. Thanks, Scott. I, anybody you know who who could ever you know want to have a consultation and talk about what's going on, whether that's a current case or post conviction, please do look me up, Wade Fink, and we'd be happy to talk to you. With it. And I w- want to conclude one thing on Meech, if you'll indulge me. Yeah. Um, you know all his notoriety and, and everything that comes with it. And, I, and people should should know the story, not only for entertainment, but it's an unbelievable story um, uh, of what that became. But I also want people to know, and I, and I say this all the time, this is a 51-year-old father who cares about the same things that you do. His son, his other kids and their well, everybody's well-being, uh, the mother of his children. And he wants the best for his community now. So there's there's just humanity in this man who prosecutors make into this icon, right? Into this figure, this 
it's all he is to to, to them. But um, I'm hopeful that the Sixth Circuit and other courts are going to see the humanity in him. And I want people to know, no matter what they're accused of or who with every, they're all human beings, all of them. And they got a story and families and, and things that they care about. And he served a lot of time. He served 16 years. 16 years. He's been locked up since the fall of 05. So, you know. No, that's, a, that's a great point, though. This, this isn't like a soft on crime case where the guy does two minutes. Yeah, this isn't a Kwame <laughs> Kilpatrick where he did seven years of a 30. Right, right. This is this, like, yeah, the guy's the guy served, you know, a substantial amount of time. Yeah. Professor, keep pushing that rehab versus punitive because we've become so focused on punishment, we forget about the big purpose of rehabilitation. Yeah, well, thank you. Absolutely. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Wade. Thank you for the audience for uh, consuming this episode. This is just uh, kind of a, one subject of a, of a wide array of original Gangsters content that we want to bring you, whether we're talking about policy issues like we've talked about in these last couple episodes, or we're talking about great historical stories, or we're talking about breaking news, or if we're talking about, you know, we're always trying to look for, for that nexus between pop culture and crime. That's what we're going to be giving you here on The OG. We hope you like it. And we're going to keep bringing it to you. I'm Scott Bernstein, Jimmy Bucciolato. Thanks to Wade Fink. Thanks to our producer, WJR, the Great Voice Podcast Network. Look for that, startupnation.com. We are in your debt, and we love being part of the, of the family here. Scott Bernstein, JB, we're out. We'll see you next time on Original Gangster Podcast.